0: Welcome to Roleplaying History, the podcast where we explore the history of roleplaying games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 22, Shadowrun. Now, to this point in the podcast, we've discussed a number of different games. However, one game we haven't expanded on yet is one of my personal favorites, Shadowrun. Shadowrun was created by Robert N. Charette, Paul Hume, Tom Dowd, L. Ross Babcock III, Sam Lewis, Dave Wiley, Mike Mulvillhill, and a literal cast of dozens. Shadowrun first hit the game world in 1989, published by FASA. So, what is Shadowrun? Well, in the first edition of the game, Shadowrun takes place in 2050. With the end of the Mesoamerican long count calendar, the sixth world arrived. When that happened, things started getting interesting. How interesting? Well, beings that were once thought to be only mythological, like dragons, started appearing around the world. A large number of humans found themselves goblinized into orcs and trolls. And there were some human children who were born as elves, dwarves, and other more exotic creatures. In North America, indigenous peoples found that their traditional ceremonies allowed them to take command of very powerful spirits, and the ghost dance movement provided rituals that allowed them to take control of most of the western United States and Canada. As a de facto payback for how bad they had been disrespected over the centuries, they formed a federation of Native American nations and formalized their control over the lands they took. For the record, Seattle remains under U.S. control by a treaty acting as a city-state enclave. It's assumed that campaigns will take place in Seattle, and as a result, the majority of the game materials are set in and around that city. So. We've looked at the magical changes, and by the way, magic in Shadowrun is real, though it's different than in games like Dungeons and Dragons. Another major component of this period are technological and social developments that come straight out of cyberpunk science fiction. Megacorporations, also known as megacores, control the lives of their employees, and command their own armies. To top that, the 10 largest megacores actually have extraterritoriality, which makes them akin to foreign heads of state. And by the way, extraterritoriality exists in reality today. Not necessarily by that term, but if you Google it, you're going to be very surprised to see what foreign heads of state can get away with in this country. Trust me. Technological advances made cyberware and bioware, which are mechanical replacement body parts, and augmented VAT-grown body parts implanted in place of natural organs, respectively, commonplace. The computer crash of 2029 led to the creation of The Matrix, Whoa. which is a worldwide computer network that users interact with via direct neural interface. In other words, you plug your ass directly in. So, this was all created in 1989, and if you go back and you flip through the first edition of the game, there's a lot of stuff that really happened by 2021. Maybe not exactly chapter and verse how they had it, but it's pretty damn close. Anyway, getting back to the overview of the game. When conflicts arise, the megacores, the governments, organized crime syndicates, and wealthy individuals outside of the other three subcontract their dirty work to specialists called Shadow Runners because of the shadow runs they complete. A shadow run is defined as a mission undertaken by deniable assets without identities or those that wish to remain unknown. It's assumed by the way that the player characters have earned a reputation for getting the job done cuz that's why they're being utilized for whatever job it is during the course of the adventure. And for the record, that's a really brief summation of what's going on in the Shadowrun game world. Trust me, if you pick up a copy and you read through the overview that they've written, it is 20-something pages long, takes up a full chapter, but 20 pages for this show is the whole show. So you get the 10-cent the, the version. Sorry. Shadowrun has been so popular over the years, it's earned six more printings. FASA was responsible for the 2nd and 3rd editions of the game in 1992 and 1998, respectively. Around 1999, FASA sold the rights to Shadowrun to Fantasy Productions, who continued publishing the 3rd edition of the game until they licensed the rights to Catalyst Game Labs in 2003. Catalyst published the 4th edition in 2005, the 20th Anniversary Edition which was not a brand new edition but a celebration in 2009, 5th edition in 2013, and 6th edition in 2019. 6th edition also acted as a de facto 30th Anniversary Edition. I do need to point out that the mechanics of the game were tweaked from edition to edition but 5th and 6th editions tend to be very similar from a mechanic's standpoint. One major change to the game for 6th edition was that the year of the game was moved forward to 2080 and history was updated to reflect that change. Shadowrun has been spun off into a number of other products as well. Starting in 2004, Shadowrun Missions has offered fans what are called Living Campaigns, which allow for persistent character advancement. The campaigns are broken down into seasons, which are made up of up to 24 different missions, some of which are convention play exclusives. Shadowrun missions have moved outside of Seattle as well, taking the action to Denver, Manhattan, and Chicago. But never fear, there are missions that take place in Seattle as well. Shadowrun has also spawned a trading card game, eight video games, and action figure game two magazines, an art book, and more than 50 novels. It should also be noted that over the years, the various editions of Shadowrun have had over a hundred supplement books published for them. So, it's safe to say that Shadowrun is a popular game and will continue to be a popular game for quite some time. But hey, that's not just me talking. Shadowrun has consistently gotten rave reviews. In 1989, Lee Bimacombe-Wood said the game was beautifully laid out and with some of the best illustrations I've seen outside of French role games. Lester W. Smith said that Shadowrun is a very visual game system. That is, it encourages imagery and role-playing without bogging down in overly dry rules. In 1996, Arcane Magazine held a reader poll to determine the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time. Shadowrun was number eight. Paul Pettingale commented that Shadowrun's strength lies in the cleverly designed background, which creates a unique setting that actually works and is continually evolving. In 2007, Shadowrun was chosen for inclusion in hobby games, the 100 best. Stephen S. Long commented, Shadowrun 2nd edition belongs on the list of best hobby games because it so superbly integrates the gaming specific material with the setting information. In doing so, it satisfies what many gamers see as their twin needs. Hard and fast rules that make gameplay fun, and an immersive setting that enhances the gaming experience rather than detracting from it. And of course, this wouldn't be a podcast I'm associated with if I didn't run down the awards Shadowrun has picked up over the years. The 2nd edition picked up the 1992 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules, and it got one for Best Graphic Representation of a Role-Playing Game, Adventure, or Supplement. 4th edition won the NE Awards for Best Rules and Best Product in 2006. The 20th Anniversary Edition got three Silver NEs in 2010, Best Interior Art, Best Production Values, and Best Game. Beyond that, Shadowrun has picked up a ton of other awards from all over the United States and around the world. Now, with those particulars out of the way, let's take a look under the hood and see how Shadowrun purrs, shall we? Okay, so when I was talking about playable races, I mentioned humans, orcs, trolls, elves, and dwarves but players can also take on races like gnomes, giants, and minotaurs. There's also a point in the history of the Shadowrun world when Haley's Comet returned and with it new human variants called changelings appeared and those are also playable. Oh, I should note that not all the things I'm talking about are available in all editions of the game. Unless I note otherwise from this point forward, let's just assume I'm talking about 6th edition, which is the current edition of the game. Alright, I've talked about player characters, but we need to talk about what the characters will be facing. I gotta tell you, it's a smorgasbord. Banshees, goblins, ghouls, vampires, wendigos, dragons. Oh my. (laughs) However, I should note that in Shadowrun, dragons shouldn't be encountered frequently as they are exceptionally powerful physically, magically, and usually financially. A great many of them are either in positions of power or More specifically, the power behind the throne in several nations around the world. And of course, characters can run into NPCs of all the races that are also playable. Now, I can go ahead and get into magic and technology in great detail. And while a lot of you would probably dig that, uh, there's a lot of you that would probably find the minutia of that boring. So, I'm just going to skim the surface of the tech and I'll touch on the magic side of things a bit. But I would strongly suggest, if you really want to deep dive this, get a copy of the Shadowrun rules, especially since I know no matter how deep I dive and how great my stories are, they just don't do it justice. Characters in a Shadowrun game have the ability to have all kinds of cyberware and bioware, and I defined those a few minutes ago. In fact, there are types of both that, as you would expect, provide positive advantages to various statistics and actions throughout the game. However, there are also some character types that strongly encourage players to avoid cyberware and bioware. And the game itself is kind of designed to discourage putting in too much of that stuff because basically the player risks losing humanity if they overload themselves on on the artificial stuff. The levels of technology in this game, especially as it pertains to the Matrix itself, is amazing. If you've seen the movie Free Guy, you've got a bit of an idea about how The Matrix works in Shadowrun. Though, yeah, I totally acknowledge it's not a one-to-one, but it can at least give you a, a little bit of a, of a visual observation of it. But it's just the, the beginning. The movie The Matrix kind of actually doesn't do a bad job either, if you want to get a little old school and go back and see that. Whoa. There are also character types in Shadowrun that focus particularly on countering the technology, deckers, and riggers. The riggers focus more on using technology to control various vehicles and drones remotely, and they do that with their mind, while the deckers use tech to basically cut their way through systems they shouldn't be in. They were originally called deckers, then they were changed to hackers, but they've since been changed back to deckers again. Magic in Shadowrun is performed by those who are deemed to be awakened. Practitioners can cast spells, summon spirits, and create magical artifacts called foci. They follow traditions that dictate how they understand magic. Now, I mentioned above that magic doesn't work the same as it does in Dungeons & Dragons, which is true. However, if you go through the system with a fine-toothed comb, you will see a lot of similarities. However, I would argue that this is because there are only so many ways you can do magic. I mean, whether you call them Gandalf, Harry Potter, or Grogu, to some extent there's a similar type of magic involved. And yes, I just insinuated that the Force is a type of magic. It's my opinion, you're welcome to disagree with me, but let's move on. Alright, let's take a look at the rest of the character archetypes available in the game. I mentioned the Deckers, the Riggers, and the Magicians. There are also the Street Samurai, who load up on cyberware and bioware and focus on physical combat. The Faces, who are, as you would expect, the face of the runner team, therefore being the one who handles negotiations and other contacts for the team. I should also note that the Magician types are broken down into subgroups as well, each with its own focus. However. I do need to mention that while there are character archetypes, these aren't classes like D&D. Any character can put focus in just about anything. The only limit comes when you go for specializations. That would be because in order to specialize in something, you have to not focus in another area. So a lot of thought really has to be put into long-term plan for your character at creation. In so far as the game itself, it's a D6 system which means it utilizes six-sided dice. We should also note that Shadowrun is skill-based rather than class-based. So what that means is that players choose the skills their characters know rather than have a certain amount of skills given to them based on the class they choose, which is how it works in D&D 5th edition. So how do you get these skills? Shadowrun utilizes a point-based character creation system. What this means is that the players have a certain number of points to use at creation, and dots in each skill are worth a certain number of points. And no, it isn't one point for one dot. The system's a little bit more complex than that. Players also have the opportunities to choose contacts for their characters, which can be quite advantageous during a session, as well as choosing lifestyles and resources. Alright, so you've, you've looked over the rules. You've created the character. Now, how do you play? So, much like I've discussed in games like Vampire, you'll have a dice pool for a task that you'll need to roll to complete the task. For example, you might be told by your GM to roll Dexterity plus Athletics to accomplish that task. So, you'd roll a number of dice equal to the number of dots in those two categories. At the same time, the GM will give you a threshold, or a number of successes that you'll need to accomplish the task. When you roll your dice, anything that's a five or better is a success. So as long as you have enough to make the threshold, you've succeeded. If you have more than the threshold, you get an extraordinary performance, and there are rules that cover that. However, if you have more than half the dice rolled turn up as ones, that is a glitch, and that is always a bad thing. All right, so let me take the theory and put it into practice for you here. Using my above example, let's say I've got three dots in dexterity, two dots in athletics. That means I'm rolling five dice. The GM tells me the threshold for my check is two. So that means I need two successes. So my roll turns up a five and a six with two twos and a three. That's a success since my two top dice met the threshold. So the GM would tell me what happened and we would move on from there. That's simple, lather, rinse, repeat. One more thing I need to mention about the game is its use of essence, karma, and edge. Essence is, as you would expect, a measuring of a living being's life force. Cyberware, bioware, and other things in the game can damage your essence, which is why characters shouldn't go all cyber. Now, there are some things that allow characters to survive with an essence below zero, but again, this is not encouraged. Karma and edge are... eh, essentially the same thing. It was all Karma up to 4th edition. Then Edge was brought into the equation. Karma points are awarded to players by the GM for play as the game progresses, and Karma is what allows players to improve their characters. Also, Karma can be utilized to purchase extra dice for rolls. Now, in 4th edition, Edge was added as an attribute to be selected for a character, and it acts kind of like the Karma pool once did in so far as uh, getting extra dice and those kinds of things. Look, I get that might be confusing. Just understand this. You need karma if you want to improve your character, so being a good player in your game is exceptionally important. So, in a nutshell, that's Shadowrun. As I mentioned up front, 6th edition Shadowrun is available now wherever you buy your gaming stuff, including your friendly local neighborhood game shop. So if you're interested, drop in and pick it up. And with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. However, we're not quite done with the show yet. There's been something that's come out over the past week or so, and I would normally just cut a YouTube video to discuss it, but with time for recording at a premium for me these days, I decided I was going to cover this on today's podcast. So you may be aware of the report of the leak of information about some Twitch performers, For those of you who aren't, about a week or so ago, reports started coming out all over the internet that somebody got a hold of information about a number of the Twitch content providers. This information also included how much money they've made from their Twitch programming. Now you might be saying, so what, what's that got to do with role-playing games? That is a good question and a valid question. Well it just so happens that the top earner on the list of released channels was Critical Role. Again, for those not in the know, Critical Role is a live play D&D game that's streamed every Thursday night on Twitch. In fact, as this episode drops, the first episode of the new campaign just dropped last night. Anyway, it was reported that from August of 2019 to October of this year, Critical Role made about $9.6 million off their Twitch channel. Again, many of you might be saying, so what? And I would agree, but you know the internet and social media. There are those who have absolutely lost their shit over this revelation and they've been hating all over Critical Role since the leak was reported. So what the hell are they so upset about? Well look, here's my two cents on this and I'll note there are a lot of folks out there on the web that have similar opinions. I think there's a certain portion of folks out there who had it in their minds that Critical Role was supposed to be some sort of free gift to those who chose to watch the show. In their minds, the players, who, as I've noted in the past, are all actors and producers, should be forking out the money to fund the games, and therefore the channel on their own. So, to find out they've been making money off it all this time just pissed them off. Okay, so let me take a minute to break this down. First off, where Critical Role is concerned, i found that there's no middle ground. You either love it, or you can't stand it. In fairness, I'm a fan, but I'll admit there are some episodes that I turn off like 20 minutes into them because it just bores the shit out of me. But look, when campaigns go 100 plus episodes, there's going to be some clunkers in the bunch that I, I don't give a damn how creative you are. Everybody pitches a shutout every now and again, okay? or more to the point, I guess, to get my baseball term better, has a shutout pitched against them. Second, to expect any group to fund their production without any expectation of payment or profit is pure horseshit. Just because the players work in creative areas does not mean they should be funding the production costs out of their own pockets. Putting together the types of productions that Critical Role puts together for their games is not cheap, and that money has got to come from somewhere. And I would note, Critical Role has had sponsorships from nearly the beginning of the show, so they've had money coming in all along. Plus, quite frankly, show me somebody on Twitch who isn't trying to make money. Seriously. I don't know very many. So to that point, you need to understand how Twitch works. I don't have enough time to really do a deep dive explanation, but just know that, okay, you can get yourself a little, I believe it's a membership, and that is like $4.99 a month, and that'll give you access to a channel, I think, or that's a sponsorship or whatever. But anyway you can twitch subscribers pay money and that helps to generate cash for the streamers also viewers can just choose to give money to streamers regardless of subscriptions fourth on my list at least i think it's fourth Shit, i don't know i've been ranting long enough i lost track it should be noted that critical role established the critical role foundation a couple years ago part of that is critical role donating money to and supporting charities and causes that they believe in To that extent, some of the money they're bringing in is going back out to help the causes they believe in. And finally, I would note that for the new season of Critical Role, they went all out on constructing a new set and working out new technology to use for the show. And I can assure you that had to cost a pretty penny. So that means again that a good chunk of the money that they brought in is going back into the show. Oh, and you can see a behind-the-scenes video of the new set on Critical Role's YouTube channel, if you're curious. And finally, okay, so did they maybe get a little bit of money for themselves? Did the individual voice actors pocket a little bit of cash? Maybe they did. Good for them. These are working actors, okay? The fact that they're doing Critical Role and they're making a couple bucks off of it means, quite likely, They didn't have to take some shitty job that they might not have really wanted to take because they needed to make the money. Doing something that they love, that people genuinely love, like Critical Role, and being able to make money off of it, you get the point. All right, so what does all this mean, and what should we make of this controversy? I'm putting quotes around that because it's not really a controversy. Because really, I think it's a whole lot about nothing. I'm all for making the money if you can make it. And I don't know any of the Critical Role folks personally. I really don't. What I've read and heard over time though, they seem to be pretty genuine people. Plus the fact that they're pouring money into charity and they're putting it back into their show, tells me they're trying to put the best product out that they can and be the best that they can be for the Critters, which is their fans. Why then are there so many haters out there? Look, man, the simple answer is that haters are always gonna hate. But I do think there's a little bit more to it than that. I think there's a certain group that believes in their own minds they could do what Critical Role does, if only. So they live vicariously through everything Critical Role does, and they see a lot of themselves in the cast. And when they found out just how much that show made, for some reason, the illusion got shattered. But here's the thing. You can do a live stream game if you want to. You can. Will it cost a bit to get it up and running? Probably. Are you going to need some tech shit to make it happen? Most definitely. Will it be as successful as Critical Role? Probably not. But think of it this way. If you could make one one hundredth of what Critical Role made during that period of time, you'd sign up for that shit a heartbeat. I mean, 90 grand in just a little bit over the year? Pshh. Yeah, I'd be able to do just this podcast. I wouldn't have to work a regular job. That would be awesome. So, to borrow a quote from one of my favorite movies of all time, Stripes, lighten up, Francis. And now we've come to the end of the show. Next week, we're going to look into two more games. We're going to get sci-fi with Star Wars and Star Trek. Now, last week, I stepped out on a limb and said you guys were going to be picking the topic for the November 26th show. At that time, I also said it might be the worst decision I've ever made. Well, based on the responses I've gotten so far, that would be correct. I am super embarrassed to admit this, but nobody's dropped us a suggestion for a topic yet. Damn. Anyway, you've got until November 17th to get them in, but I've decided for now I'm not going to provide updates unless we've got stuff to talk about on this because, well, shit, I rolled a 1 on that one. Anyway, you can hit us up on all our usual sources if you've got ideas. And I do want to give a big thanks to all of you for listening to the show every week, and I do want to apologize for last week's show was being late Still trying to get my shit together with the new job, and it, it, things get wonky every now and again. I am endeavoring to be smarter about all of this and a little better organized moving forward. Okay, so if you want to follow us, you can do that. You know where Facebook, Role Playing History Podcast, Twitter, hit us up on at Role Playing P, YouTube, Role Playing History Podcast is the channel. You know what to do when you get there. Or if you'd like to send an email, hit us up, roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. Special shout out to at For the Loot gaming on Twitch, who sure as hell isn't making that critical role money. But if you'd like to watch along while cool video games get played, go give that shit a peek. Alrighty then, next week we become one with the Force and live long and prosper as we look into the games based on Star Wars and Star Trek. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your Role Playing History.